Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Roy Price. Now, Roy, uh, is he runs this great substack. I read uh, pricepoint.substack.com. Go check it out. Um, uh, but the reason it's so interesting uh, is because uh, Roy was for uh, many years. He founded Amazon Video. Uh, he uh, was, you, I, you also founded Amazon Studios, yes? You were yes. Yes. Uh, and I, I love Amazon Studios. I was just looking back at the that that first run of movies that Amazon Studios did. I remember seeing Chirac in theaters, uh, Love right. and Friendship in theaters. I like it. That was that was a real a real interesting time. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, kind of uh, what that might look like today. I think mm-hmm. uh, Roy, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Sonny. I'm a frequent listener. So, uh, well, that's very that's very nice of you to say. Uh, so, look here's here's why I wanted to have you on the show. You you put out uh, uh, on your Substack. You had a a, a really interesting uh, essay this week about what it would look like to start a studio today. What what if you wanted to start a studio today? What would you try to do? How would you try to do it? Um, and it's it's an interesting question because it does feel like there is a big space in the low to mid budget range. Um, a twenty four style uh, or Bloomhouse style uh, studio, um, and yet we we ha- have all of these movies coming out that cost a hundred million, hundred fifty million, two hundred million dollars. What what would you if you were looking to start a studio today? Um, again, kind of like you did with Amazon Studios. Uh, what would that actually look like? Well, I think first you have to figure out, you know, what gap in the market you're filling and what you're good at. Uh, so, like, why does the world need this studio? Because the, the world doesn't per se need another studio that is just going to make, like, generic films. So uh, you have to have a specific identity and plan. And, uh, you know, traditionally, if you think of media brands that have that have started, they've followed this pattern, um, you know, going all the way back to uh, Max Sennett and Keystone, you know, pictures or Casablanca Records or whatever. You know, you should have a vibe and something that you're about and bringing to the world. And uh, if you look at the market today, um I would say there are definitely things that are missing. There, there are kind of, I'd say, uh, gaps uh, that you can see, and then, and then maybe opportunities a- in the future that we could speculate about. But uh, I think probably the most obvious one is comedy, which has gone from about twenty percent of box office to about six. And to take a step back, by the way, uh, the premise. Of course, from my point of view, is that movies are back, theatrical is back. You know, you can see Barbie and Oppenheimer and a lot of titles actually doing well. And uh, so I take that as a premise. And then looking at the titles, looking at what everybody is doing, uh, I think, you know, comedy is probably at the core of the opportunity, but I think there are other opportunities around that. Well, comedy is interesting. I mean, I. I uh... I saw somebody talking the other day, uh, an actor name escapes me, but he was saying, look, comedy comedies are kind of dead at the box office right now because Marvel has eaten up that space. And it's it's true if you look at comedy as a genre, right? It's been kind of absorbed into we don't have a lot of pure comedies anymore. It's comedy superhero. It's comedy action. Um, uh, it's comedy 
you know, I, I don't know, uh, whatever. But it's like the, the, the actual pure comedy space has kind of withered because it's been absorbed into so much else. Mm, right. But, uh, you know, we could do like The Hangover, Tropic Thunder, Airplane, Blazing Saddles, like comedies that are actually super funny. Uh, I have no, there's no reason to believe that there is not still a huge market for that. And, uh, so I, I think that, I mean, yes, other movies like an action movie, like everything everywhere should have a sense of humor. Uh, and so there are a lot of things that can be somewhat funny. Uh, but I think there's an opportunity for, you know, movies that are more traditionally comedies like a Stripes or a Fletch or a Ghostbusters or what have you. Mm-hmm. I mean, no hard feelings has done okay at the box office. It, it yeah, opened a little, okay. a little soft and and has kind of held on. Uh, yeah, and that's through, kind so of a really you have to give Jennifer Lawrence a lot of credit for that because, like, I don't even I don't I don't really even get the premise. <laughs> um. All right. So all right. So the idea. The, the first idea here is to have an identity for your studio. I mean, I, I like it's I, I feel like that's the sort of thing that's easy to say, but hard to visualize and vocalize. I mean, like when you're when you're looking at um, when you're looking at the marketplace right now, uh, like, yes. All right. So there's the gap for comedies. But, you know, what what market niche would need to be filled, do you think, by one of these uh, studios, a new studio? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, that's the the core of it. I also think that um, uh, I, th- I think that's the number one thing. And then I think there are opportunities in, uh, you know, if you look at action, um, a lot of it is uh, tonally uh, very kind of international and sort of sophisticated. Even John Wick, you know, it's all about like the Russian mob and Hitman's bodyguard is like in Europe. And I, I know this is just my instinct and, and people can disagree, but I think there's an opportunity in like um, just kind of regular American, like I almost feel like, uh, and I can't prove this, but I almost feel like... Um, you know, when, what was that Springsteen album, like Born in the USA or whatever came out, there's kind of a little bit of an incipient uh, vibe out there that I think is is not being served very much. And we saw it maybe a little bit in Top Gun. I think it's in the aesthetics of Barbie a little bit. That's just kind of very, you know, traditional in a way. Um, and like those, those, you know, like trucker movies, like Smoking the Bandit or Walking Tall, just like, you know, we're not in Bruges. We're not doing Sexy Beast in like the south of France. We're, you know, we're like in Texas. And there's, you know, like, I think there there's an opportunity to uh, just do some fun American action stories that uh, that is out there as well. They're just kind of next door to comedy. Uh, and some of them could be comedies, but uh, but my instinct is that we're not seeing a lot of that either. Um, and you know, there's this whole thing of like stuff that uh, everything everywhere was was taking part of, um, which is kind of meta modern and and fun and having fun with itself. Uh, and I think there's a lot of stuff down that road as well. I think what is 
There's a really fun Japanese movie called Gintama that I I recommend that is is fun to see along those lines. Um, mm-hmm. So you know what is more difficult is stuff right now. I think that is like super serious. Uh, I think this is just not the moment for it. We've seen a lot of movies bite the dust over the last year that are just too heavy mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. nostalgic. You know, whether it's yeah. um, you know, not to be critical of anyone, but even stuff like, you know, I don't know, um, Armageddon Time or Fablemans or, you know, uh, even even stuff like uh. Nope, I hurt your feelings or something. Uh, like I, I think people really want something a little more at high energy, cinematic, fun right now. Like that's a that's a pretty clear signal. And it's you don't want to overread because you're making a movie. It's going to come out two years, but um, but that's really my sense of the market right now. So so if you're starting a studio to get back to your question, I think you want to focus on this zone that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I that's uh there. There was a point that you made either in this newsletter or a previous one that the the range of nostalgia now is so narrow that w- when you when you say nostalgia, you, who's nostalgia? Right. Whose nostalgia are we talking about? You know, and with the the marketplace as kind of um you know segmented as it is, how how that actually works uh, in a um. Uh, how nostalgia works in a in a new movie is very interesting and very hard to kind of quantify and ex- explain to people. Yeah, I mean, nostalgia feels risky to me because, you know, what you're nostalgic for may not be what I'm nostalgic for. So, you know, if you're a master, you can probably, you know, like in um, uh, you know, the movie uh, the about Sicily with the theater that burned down... Um, the famous Cinema Italian Paradiso. movie, Cinema Paradiso, you know, makes you uh, nostalgic for like Sicily in the 50s or whatever it was. Uh, so, you know, if you're really great, you can make it work. But in general, I'm not nostalgic for the 60s because I was not, you know, I didn't live through that. Right. So, um, you know, that's that's a real that's a real challenge. And in, in general, I don't I think it's a tough road. You know, I mean, maybe if we're going to do the 90s or something, yeah. you know, like if you look yeah. like it, look at like Wonder Years, how many years prior, how much of a look back was that? Uh, it's not usually like 60 years, you know, yeah. or like how many years back was like Greece? It's like 10 right, or right. 20 years. Anyway, I, I worry a little bit about that. And as I said, you know, talent and quality trumps everything else, of course, but as a guideline. We've seen a few trip ups in that zone over the past year. Well, it's interesting too. If you look at, uh, you know, let's look at a couple of the biggest hits of the, of the year so far, right? Super Mario Brothers obviously is a huge hit, but that's a, that's a movie that also appeals to people who grew up playing Super Mario Brothers in the 1980s or right. 90s or or aughts or uh, something like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Smaller scale success, but still still looks like it's it's going to be a pretty decent hit here. And that's again, that's something that appeals to, uh, you know, kids uh, who watched the cartoon in the 90s, played with the toys 
in the nineties. I mean, that is a, that is a, a, those are types of nostalgia that seem to work or yeah. Barbie, but I mean, Barbie is a, you know, that is a generations right. spanning thing, I think. Yeah. And that's like IP. So I would put that in a different category from like societal nostalgia. Uh, so you have a particular toy or something that people played with and they're familiar with and they like it and they want to see the movie. Um, and that does seem to be working so long as you're, you know, keeping it fun and, uh, sort of, you know, playing to the audience that is the fan base. Um, I mean, obviously like Indiana Jones tried to do the same thing and I, I think ran into some, uh, difficulties and, um, and I guess the flash as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's. Well, that you know that that brings me to to the next point in your in your newsletter, which is scope and scale, size. Like the size of these movies has has uh, has certainly gotten out of control on the higher end of things. But even um, you know even something like Babylon, right? Uh, or uh, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a big success, but that's a that's a tough one. That's a that's a that's a you know you need two stars and Quentin Tarantino, and you know everything else. Uh, I, what what should what should studios be looking at in terms of size and scale? If you're looking to again, if you're looking to get started, you've got you know I've just won the Mega Millions. I have five hundred million dollars to play with. I want to start a movie studio. What what are my first five projects budgeted at? Well, I mean, you know, it does depend how much money you have. So if you have, you know, there is this type of movie that is you know prestige director. A big actor or three, um, and it's a hundred million or a little more. And uh, so it's Babylon, it's Oppenheimer, uh, it's like Wolf of Wall Street, Scorsese's new picture. Um, And often these pictures do work, you know, so Oppenheimer worked, Wolf of Wall Street worked. Um, I can't remember the budget of Amsterdam, but I'm going to kind of throw it into the same category. I think the budget was a little lower, but, um, you know, it's, you know, so what you're saying, if you're making the movie for a hundred is, so now you're, you have to gross like, let's say 130, 140. So, so that's like twice as much as the big short. So the big short, in my opinion, was a super successful film. Also, everything everywhere was like seventy-seven, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we're saying we're going to be almost double everything everywhere in the big short. Those those are very successful films. Um, I I think if you're doing that, you're either doing that because you don't care, you you have some other goal. You know, you're like you're a streaming service, and you really want to win an Oscar. Or, um, like the people who uh, finance, like Wolf of Wall Street, uh, you know, no offense to anyone, but like some of the people behind that, like there was some like financial scandal behind it, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So, like, they didn't really care. Um, you know, you've got to have a different sense of risk. If you're actually a real life studio that intends to make money in movies, I think that kind of movie, which, you know, will might, you know, you might hear about two or three times a year, uh, is probably not a great idea. It, it could be a winner, 
but probably in the best case scenario where you get a box office of uh let's say 150 you're making a very small amount um i think even even gatsby uh would probably you know be about break even at that level yeah. so so that's not really you know i mean the opportunity to lose a lot is is pretty significant there cuz you know i mean what if you gross 40 you know then you're really out a lot so um i think you're better off you know with uh you know everything everywhere was like 14 mm-hmm. um and you know the original john wick this is several years ago now but uh it was around 14 15 as well mm-hmm. and i think uh well, talk about several years ago, but like, you know, Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs in that zone, right? Right. Um, and you can do a lot of comedies in that zone as well. And you can even kick it up to, let's say, 30. And, um, you know, and, and there's a lot to choose from. I think that um, La La Land was somewhere, bet- somewhere between 30 and 40. Mm-hmm. And you know maybe you could get it down to thirty, uh, and hopefully get it into your zone uh, for this theoretical you know new studio. But but I think at that level where you know you you break even at you know twenty eight to forty two at the box office, and anything above that is is you know profit. Um, those are like that. You can see that happening. That can work. Yeah. Let, uh, one one thing you talked about uh, is the economy of scale. Like how many? So when you're when you're making when you're making movies, you know, you're you're better off making ten movies and hoping one or two hit uh, to make up for the the you know the rest that either break even or don't. Um, what is the what's the, if you're again, you're sitting down, you've got, you know, uh, a big, big pile of money. What is the number of films you're looking to release a year uh, in the hopes of hitting, you know, break even? We get to keep doing this for another year. I think 10 to 12 is a is a good goal. I, I think there there are some companies in Hollywood that. Um, you know, they do like three and the problem with that is um it's just very risky you know i mean showbiz is 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 kind of like um insurance or something where like you know if you made a bet that somebody was going to uh die before a certain point in time that would be weird and risky right but if you did that a hundred thousand times you'd be an insurance company right (laughs) And you'd you'd have like a predictable, very predictable business. Uh, and in the movies, if you bet on one, it, it's unpredictable and risky. But if you have ten or twelve, it becomes more predictable. And I just think you know, if you have three, uh, I'm not sure it quite gets to the threshold of starting to be a sort of you know a business. Uh, you know, I mean. It just feels like it's a very, very, uh, very concentrated bets at that point. So I, I feel like those entities should should probably like get together, like you know, just be part of one entity. I, I don't understand why they're independent. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because it feels like about the right size is at 10 to 12. And traditionally, when people have tried to go above 10 to 12, uh, their quality has, has deteriorated. Uh, so there aren't a lot of examples of people like going to 40 and really having a lot of great movies come out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. L- let me, I, I, let me, I want to drill down onto one thing here just for, uh, for layman audiences, uh, because I, I, I try, I, I myself am a layman and I try to target it at the layman. When, when you're, you're in, in your newsletter, you talk about the difference between just being a production company and being a distributor. Um, and when you're a distributor, you know, you, you basically have green light power. You can say, we're going to make this movie. When you're a production company, you're waiting on Warner brothers or Paramount or whoever to sign off. And then you've got to sell it. You got to sell foreign rights and et cetera, et cetera. Could you explain to folks a difference here between like, if you're sitting down, you're like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to make 10 movies a year and I'm going to distribute them myself. What are, what are some of the challenges there in terms of getting things actually out to people, to theaters, um, to the, to the, to the viewers? Well, I mean, let's say we have a script, we have an actor, we have a director, and we have a $10 million budget, and we have $10 million. Okay, now we have everything we need, you know, to make this movie. Uh, However, we want some reassurance that once we put the money into the movie, and then we have a movie, that we're then going to be able to receive money back. Uh, And that requires distribution. Uh, so, and for theatrical dis- distribution, it requires someone to put up money for marketing the film. And mm. so either in scenario A, you are your own distributor and you're going to do that. Or B, you have to go and ask these other people to support you as your partner in that way. And, and very similar thing for foreign, right? But in scenario B, you are not really in control. Like, you can't really green light anything. You know, you're simply a guy who is going and asking this other guy if you can make your movie. Uh, and it depends entirely on that person saying, yes, I'll, you know, take it out to theaters, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it's a little suboptimal because, or it's, I would say it is, it is not as good. Because, um, you know, the more people who get to weigh in, the closer to the mean you're going to be, the closer to the average decision-making process you're going to be, right? Because, um, you know, your company, in theory, is going to do well if you have a distinctive point of view that is unique and valuable, okay? But um, if instead that is watered down because you have to conform with all these other random people whose approval you require, uh, then you're going to wind up with a bunch of films that are, are less a distinctive representation of, let's say, your point of view and, and much closer to just, you know, average films. And remember, the the rewards in showbiz do not go to the average. They go to only to the top. Um, so you, this whole strategy, this structure that has been set up really undermines the opportunity to be distinctive. Now, you could wind up being distinctively bad. Like, you know, you could have a horrible run and 
these these distributors could have saved you from your horrible decisions <laughs> but you know we're looking at the other scenario where you know you're you're on a genius run okay <laughs> well, let's all right Let's assume. Let's assume, for the sake of argument here, that uh, I've got I've got the genius talent. We've got we've got these movies as a neo uh, a neophyte distributor. What are, what am I? What do I need to do to make sure that these things get into theaters? I mean, is it just going to CinemaCon and being like, "Hey, theater owners, look at these great movies I've got. You got to put them in your theaters." Like, how does that actually? How does it actually work? Yeah, you you say, "Look, I have you know Scarlett Johansson and and." you know Wes Anderson and here's what it's about here's the trailer and we're supporting it with 20 million dollars of marketing and and we're looking to open October 7th what do you say and um you know you'll you'll get screens um there's a little problem right now that some theaters ha- have gone away like uh the Cinerama Dome uh, what what was called the arc light at the end in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, and uh, the landmark on Pico in Los Angeles. So this particularly is detrimental for what you call the indie or artsy segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see pictures like the worst person in the world and Triangle of Sadness kind of underperform, and I'm not ascribing that entirely to two theaters. But it is, uh, you know, it's a little bit of an issue right now with a particular zone of movie. And so, again, that's, that's another reason that that zone is, is kind of the, the laggard. And you, you want to have a movie that is appropriate for, you know, a little less film forum in New York and a little more, you know, AMC, AMC mm-hmm. 15 in Century City. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, what what is the state of platforming right now? So what what you're describing right is 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 kind of platforming, right? You open in New York and in, in LA in four theaters and you do $60,000 per screen if you're lucky and then you 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 spread out a little bit. It feels like that model has kind of broken a bit in the in the COVID era. I mean, you still see some um success there with like everything everywhere all at once kind of steadily grew. Uh, but the, that is definitely a segment of the market that feels a little bit weaker now than it did say when, I don't know, like black Swan was able to get up to 140 million or whatever that made domestic, you know, after opening in two theaters, uh, is it, is it, is it just a function of that indie audience not being there right now? Or is there some other structural issue at play? Well, I, I think in the in the true indie zone, so uh, Triangle of Sadness or whatever, um, or, you know, like Yorgos Lanthimos has a picture coming up uh, imminently. Uh, you know, I think post-COVID, we're, we're just starting over. Um, and I think most things seem to be back and functioning. So with the exception of... We've lost a couple thousand screens in total in the U.S., including some important ones. Um, but otherwise, you know, people know where their theater is, and they seem to be going to the theater. Um, so we've had some really good weekends recently. And um, so it is possible that uh, a platforming strategy where you just go out to six theaters or whatever 
uh, could work. We could see some successes later this year uh, with some prestige pictures in December. I can imagine that. Uh, and it's just a little harder because we have some missing screens uh, to place those uh, those movies. But I, I'm sure people will figure it out somehow. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing you, you've also talked about is just the decline in award season audiences in general. I mean, movies like uh, Tar, um, which I loved, uh, one of my favorite movies of last year. Or Triangle of Sadness. I mean, like, you know, movies that movies that are getting award season consideration, but aren't getting the kind of traditional award season bump at the box office. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, you know, look, the the award shows are viewed by like 25 percent the number of people who used to view them. Uh, and so the bump you get from awards attention is just not what it was. Uh, so that's unfortunate. And it's another thing that sort of militates against, um, that kind of movie, you know, which is why, uh, you know, we might have to wait a season or two for, you know, that kind of thing, or really that, you know, certain types of things may really have to go over to streaming or to television or, or something. You know, there there may be things that would have been made 15 years ago that would not be made uh, today. It just wouldn't make sense to make them for theatrical today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you're safer if you do have some, you know, bigger element of fun. You know, whether it's Everything Everywhere or... Oppenheimer or, uh, you know, whatever it is that it makes it a little more cinematic and brings people to, to the theater. Um, you know, so I, I'm not sure you're going to see, you know, the English patient King speech. Uh, I think that gets into slightly tougher territory. I think Manchester by the sea. Um, I think you would do, because it's a super high quality, but I, I think uh, I'm not sure it would do like 45 million, which is what it did yeah. when it came out. Well, I mean, I, I you I get the sense that Netflix is kind of cornering this market, right? I mean, you're you, with your Romas, uh, Irishman, um, uh, Power of the Dog, right? That that sort of like uh, prestige, kind of traditional. Um, all quiet on the Western Front. Another one right there, right? Like we got a ton of Oscar nominations, won won a bunch of technical awards, um, but would not necessarily be something that you could release in theaters to a mass audience and and hope to uh, make your money back. I mean, it, you know, there's an audience for Roma or Western Front uh, at, for sure. Um... They've always had a, a sort of hostility to theatrical that I don't totally understand. I mean, in my opinion, if you release, you know, at Amazon Studios, we released almost every movie to theaters um, because I think that customers view a movie that, you know, went to theaters and, you know, got reviewed and stuff as like a real movie. Uh, and something that you release straight to TV is television. You know, it's different. 
uh, and they value it differently. They perceive it differently. And, um, but we've never agreed on that. Yeah. Well, I, let's talk, let's dive into this a little bit, because as I mentioned, you know, Amazon Studios, I remember, I remember that first, like, real, very solid run of movies, uh, you know, and, and we're talking about movies uh, made for okay budgets, mo- modest budgets with well-known directors like Spike Lee doing Chirac, uh, with Stillman doing Love and Friendship. Um, you know, Manchester by the Sea obviously was a big hit, both commercially, critically, award season uh, wise. Um, and as you say, those all those all go into theaters. Uh, they are they are you know, varying levels of success, but at the very least, it you know gets the it gets the the brand and the movies themselves out there. Um, when you were looking at the strategy for the studio, uh, you know you you've already got the streaming service Prime Video. Uh, there, you could have put these on streaming directly. Instead, you go for the theatrical route. What was what was your thinking there? It was really that you know customers are going to value these more if they're real movies and real movies go to theaters. And uh, if you want to win awards, I I think if you skip theaters, it just really reduces your chance, not to zero, but. Uh, particularly at the time, I, I think it, it, you know, you're better off going to theater. So, uh, so it made sense in almost all cases to go to theaters. Um, and you know, for us, we were, you know, we wanted to have an original movie program, but within a budget constraint. And so we were focused on doing, you know, special films, uh, that had, you know, we're kind of in that indie uh, prestige segment, and that became like part of our part of our brand at the time. And um, uh, so that's that's the area that we were that we were focused on. So we, yeah, so Manchester and the Big Sick and some others. Uh, yeah, uh, the Neon Demon. I, I just pulled up the oh, list yeah. again because I was I, that that 2016 run is is uh, I mean it's just a. Uh, it's wild to look back at Patterson, another another yeah. uh, night, really really fun. Patterson, really we had movie. a Mike Lee picture uh, in there. Yeah, uh, The Handmaiden, Park Chan Wook. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, Park that's Chan-wook. that's a. And again, it seems very. It seems very. This the sense I get again, just looking back at this list now and thinking about it is, you know, look, you're you're looking at films made by auteurs with name recognition within a pretty tight budget range, you know. Uh, I don't know what five to twenty million, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, that seems to be like what you're what you're talking about now. For if you were going to start a studio, if you if somebody came to you with a you know, here's a big pot of money. Uh, this is this is the sort of thing we should be making. Yeah, except that now, uh, yeah, you know, one year we had six pictures at Cannes. Uh, it was we were definitely in that zone, you know. Uh, and what I think I would do differently today and, you know, somebody else would have a different plan, you know, uh, is many more of those movies would be trying to go after that hangover Tropic Thunder, uh, vibe, um, because it's not on the market and it's great and people really want it. I think it's the thing that's missing. And and some of those movies would have to be made at lower budgets or or they wouldn't be made um some of the you know if it's too 
talky or it's too much of a downer. I, I just think it's it's not for this moment. You know, you may have to wait a year. You know, maybe th- people will come around. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, like like tar and, and stuff. It's 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 just not not the moment for that kind of thing. So yeah, um, yeah I think a much unless. Unless, of course, you've got Christopher Nolan making Oppenheimer. I mean, yeah. Oppenheimer talking a little bit of a downer, and that movie is is blowing up. But I mean, that's there is a know. special Christopher Nolan exception. <laughs> and you know, listen, with every rule or guideline or whatever opinion you have, uh, you know, tomorrow, you know, Margot Robbie and Christopher Nolan walk in. Obviously, whatever, it's all good. You know, <laughs> or we're probably going to move yeah. forward. Uh, yeah. so. The uh, I it I want to I want to just uh, focus a little more on the the Amazon Studios versus um, Amazon Video distinction here because I'm 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 fascinated by the business of streaming. In many ways, it doesn't make any sense to me at all, and I I don't understand it. But in other ways, it makes a lot of sense. It makes perfect sense. My big question for you is: when you were looking at what worked for. Amazon video in terms of acquiring and keeping subscribers. Uh, what, I mean, what were you guys looking for? Was it, was it new original series? Was it, uh, did, did films perform well as acquisition uh, materials or like, I, I, when I, I ask this because when I look at Netflix and I see them spending $250 million or whatever on red notice, I, it hurts my head because I, I just can't understand how doing that gets you or retains you as many subscribers as making like 10 uh 10 hour seasons of television you know yeah well you know again the the stuff that makes the most money and gets the most attention in hollywood is the is are the top projects and uh so that's why those have outsized value and can command uh, you know, like even Knives Out or something, there you get a big deal for that because because people are going to pay attention to it and they're going to watch it. Um, and uh, so, TV and movies are both important. They're about equally important. I, I think if you had to choose, you'd you'd take a repeating TV show over a over a movie because it repeats. Um, but uh, but sometimes those expensive things can be some of your most efficient uh, money because, you know, it's very high profile and everybody watches it and it attracts a lot of new customers. You know, it, there's nothing worse. There's nothing less valuable than being solid. Solid, pretty good, okay. All of these... Are, can be translated as like zero value, okay? Because you you get zero new customers, zero publicity. It's just like forget it, pass, moving on. You know the stuff that matters is high profile. People talk about it. It wins awards, or it's just a huge hit. You know that's what makes a difference at the end of the year when you look back. You know what drove our growth this year? It's that stuff. <laughs> And the other stuff is mostly, you know, turns out to be kind of replaceable. Well, you mentioned you mentioned solid being worth nothing. And I want to I want to loop back to something we had we had touched on very, very quickly, but didn't didn't get to to drill down on. And and that's horror. 
horror horror movies feel like the eternal uh, low hanging fruit. Yeah, uh, you know, every year you see uh, ten or so, you know, five million dollar horror films make thirty or forty million dollars at the box office. So not enormous hits, but like big enough to to be profitable. But a point you make that I think is very smart that people don't focus enough on is that if you make uh, a very solid you know, 7.0 on IMDb, 70% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, a uh, $5 million horror movie, that's $5 million you've lost. Because you can't put it in theaters and get people to show up. You, you're not, you're not going to make that money back on VOD. Um, what, are, what are some of the risks and rewards in this space? Because again, I feel like, I constantly feel like it's underappreciated, but maybe it's just actually kind of a, overfilled. Well, I mean... My feeling is that um, between Jason Blum and A24, you know, you're going to be third in line, you know, in the horror, you know, for the horror stuff. And uh, it's also, as I said, you know, just each each to, you know, you should just do what you're good at and... um, I focus less on that and focus more on comedy, but you know, each to his or her own. Um, but I, I do think that Blumhouse and a 24 are really strong in that area. And I think that the economics of horror over the past couple of years have been so good that in the next few years, we're just going to see a ton of horror movies. And so I worry about the segment a little, I could be wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, but also if we get back to brand, you know, I think that all studios these days should really be a brand. And I think A24 and Blumhouse have had some success at, you know, developing themselves as a brand that matters to audiences uh, in different categories. So A24 is kind of indie with some horror, but and Blumhouse basically horror. Um, but I think, you know, if one were to start something new, it probably don't want to be in in the horror zone, because that's kind of taken. But let's say we're doing a kind of more rambunctious comedy, sometimes with some indie feeling. Um, You know, you'd have to ask whether this horror thing, like, fits into that. Uh, And it may or may may not. Yeah. One thing you had mentioned in uh, a previous newsletter is having a sensitivity to the political moment. So just Mm -hmm. you, you... regardless of which side you come down on, you just have to be aware of it. Do you think that plays at all into the state of comedy or, you know, what, what people feel comfortable making? Yeah, there seems to be some relationship there. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you really have to prioritize making, you know, great movies that people want to see that like you have to take the audience as it actually is in real life and do things that are funny that people laugh at. And um, I do think you have to be conscious of the fact that sometimes people get tripped up, you know, one one way or the other, other politically. And, um, you know, don't just ignore it. You probably have to be conscious of it and, uh, you know, try to avoid that because that would be bad. Yeah. easier said easier said than done i'm always surprised what gets people what gets people tripped up these days uh so you you can never be sure well that was uh that was pretty much everything i wanted to ask i'm trying i'm trying to think here there was anything else uh but but uh but i I, nothing is coming to mind 
Um, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything folks should know about the state of filmmaking, state of indie streaming, whatever. I mean, where, where, what do you think uh, folks should know that we haven't talked about here? No, you know, I think it's a, I think it's an exciting time because after a sort of boring couple of years, you know, uh, I think right now the argument for movies is strong and and there are specific things to do that kind of aren't being done. So there's a clear opportunity. And so I think it's an exciting time. The I, I do think we have to think a little bit about, you know, how do we keep the sort of indie part of the business uh, healthy, uh, particularly for like um, maybe first time directors and stuff like that. Cause you, you do need, you know, to have Greta Gerwig create Barbie, you have to have Francis Ha as well, you know, several years ago. So you have, you have to have a market for that. You have to have opportunities for that. And um, so I, I think some thought has to go into you know, what's happening with this sector? Are we going to bring these theaters back to life? Does it make sense to, uh, for somebody to buy them or like what's going on with all, with all of that? I think that's, it would be interesting to see some good thinking in that, in that zone. Yeah. Do you think there's any chance, uh, that, you know, one of the studios, uh, either Netflix or, I mean, Netflix has already bought a, a handful of theaters, but, you know, as we, as we discussed, they don't really love theatrical, but like Amazon or Apple or somebody like that actually picking up some of these chains and making them, uh, a little more, a little more viable and friendly to this sort of film. It's possible. I, I don't think it's irresistible. So, uh, you know, I mean, if you were sitting in Seattle at Amazon contemplating, you know, various deals you could make on behalf of the company, I'm not sure that one gets to the very top of the list. You know, yeah. there are a lot of opportunities. I want to lose a bunch of money on theaters. Yeah. I, Let's, mean, uh... <laughs> I mean, how much I of a difference yeah. is it really going to make to your movies, you know, if you owned AMC or Landmark? like? Maybe yeah. a little, five or ten percent, maybe five. So, I, I'm yeah. not holding my breath on that one. Yeah. Uh, all right, Roy. Thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, again, uh, it's uh, the Price Point Substack. You should check it out. PricePoint.substack.com. I'll link to it in my newsletter. Um, if you enjoy my newsletter, I'm sure you will enjoy uh, Price Point. Um, thanks. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Sonny. I'll see you on Twitter. <laughs> I'm, I'm always there. Uh, my name, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at the Bulwark, uh, and I will be back next week with another episode of the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.